Let's pray. Father, we're just so very, very thankful that you allow us a place to meet, and even more than that, you've given us to be a part of a people who would meet together in your name, bought by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, bound together by the Holy Spirit, safe in you. Open our eyes that we might see, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A farewell address has deep meaning simply because it is a farewell address. Throughout human history, there have been some that have been epic. I think in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders and just looking at that text again as I had uh, preaching responsibilities this week, you, you just think of Paul speaking to those elders who had come to meet him at Miletus there in the book of Acts. And then they escorted him to the ship weeping because they knew that they would never see his face again. And that finality adds a pathos to the words that were spoken, such that when the elders went back to Ephesus and said, this is what Paul said to us, I said, this is the last word we will ever receive from the Apostle Paul to our faces. This is what we now bring to you. We will never see his face again. There are farewell addresses that are given at the end of life. But here in the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus who will be crucified, who will be resurrected from the dead, who will then ascend to the Father. In preparation for all of those things, for those whom he loves and his own, he is explaining to them what these things mean, getting them ready for these events. But he's also doing something else. He's telling them, that in the course of all of this, what's most important is that they know who he is. And thus they will know who they are. We've been in John chapter 14. And when most people think of John chapter 14, they go immediately to verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And, and that's understandable because if there's any one verse in John 14 that stands out to us as one of those pillar verses that uh, frames the entire understanding of the Christian faith, there is one. There is one that is indispensable to us. We have to come back to this text over and over and over again. It is the locus classicus in the New Testament of Christ as the singular Savior. And, and not only the singular Savior, but there, there is no other possibility of salvation and of being with the Father but through him. But th that's something else we need to note. It's, it's to the Father, because we often think of John 14, 6 as being about salvation, yes, about how one goes to heaven, yes. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to salvation. But you'll notice that the way Jesus put it was that, that no one comes to the Father. The whole point of Jesus's ministry, let us remind ourselves, is that we may be made at peace with God, our sins forgiven, his righteous wrath averted. And that comes by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come not only to be made at peace with God, but we come to be his own. How? As we've been going through John chapter 14... We saw in verses 8 and following, after Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You're looking for a theophany? 
I am the theophany. Then we saw that Jesus is also the lawgiver. As he says that those who love me will keep my commandments. He also is one who gives commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's where we were left with Jesus, the lawgiver. And again, only God can give commandments. And these are not, these are not simply laws that are discovered or rationalized. These are commandments that are given by the one who has the right to give commandments. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also speaks of sending the helper, the spirit of truth. And so we are here told, as the disciples are being told, that there will be one who will come to be alongside them. And it clearly is what we now know as Jesus' references to the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. He says, The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so there's that tense we saw. He's, he's with you now. The Holy Spirit is with you now. He will be in you then. And this is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's given not to some, but to all believers. But then as we passage, as we turn further in the passage and we pass to verse 18, notice the language of Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What's Jesus saying here? Look at the sweetness of the language. I will not leave you as orphans. Where did that come from? Liberal New Testament critics looking at the Gospel of John say that when you look at John 14, what you're looking at is a bunch of stuff pasted together. As they try to look at it and say, just taking a purely literary, uh, observational look at the Gospel of John here, it's a bunch of stuff that's put together and it's kind of disjointed. That's proof to those who are operating with a non-supernatural understanding of the Bible that uh, by the time you get here, John's just pulling from a lot of sources different things that Jesus said. Well, if that's true, we're in trouble because then this isn't the word of God. We don't trust this. We don't trust John. But we're beginning with the affirmation of verbal inspiration. Not only is every word inspired, but every word is equally inspired. And this is not John editing material. It's John giving us the farewell discourse of Jesus. But it is a bit disjointed. Or at least it looks that way a little bit to us. But isn't that more a sign of authenticity than anything else? For two reasons. First of all, there's a lot that Jesus has to say, and he has to say it partially and come back and cycle back because it's clear that the disciples don't understand it all at the time. 
Even in speaking about the Holy Spirit, he will come back again and again and again. Speaking about the time between his crucifixion and resurrection and between the resurrection and the ascension, he will come back to that again and again. And I can imagine that's exactly the way that the disciples could have understood this insofar as they could have understood this. It would take Jesus saying, I've already told you this. As you remember, I told you this. On the other hand, another proof that this is exactly what it's presented to us to be is that Jesus here just isn't talking about some kind of maxim. He's actually speaking of his absence from the disciples. In other words, it fits this farewell discourse perfectly. And we feel the the weight of it. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, here's what's interesting. What's the definition of an orphan? Well, the Bible knows orphans all too well. Mortality is such a present danger that losing one or both parents becomes a a major issue. That's why God describes himself as the father to the fatherless. It is why widows and orphans and the sojourner in their midst were the three vulnerable categories that were spoken to Israel. It's why James will speak about ministry to widows and orphans as noble, because orphans are dependent. To be a child is to be dependent, and not just dependent in a way as dependent for material food, drink, but also for protection, love, affection, discipline, love more than anything else. Now, what would the disciples have been thinking when they hear Jesus say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans? Now, that seems like a certain category of statement that would be both reassuring and horrifying at the same point. Reassuring in the sense, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. But frightening in their realization that he is leaving them. The duality of that has to be so very poignant as we're looking at this passage. And yet, the word orphan here also cries out to us because if all we had was verse 18, I'm not sure that we would have a good theological explanation for what Jesus is saying to us. And it's because Jesus is very careful in all four of the Gospels, and the New Testament is consistent about this, Jesus is very careful not to be confused with the Father. In fact, just in the passage already that we've covered in John chapter 14, he speaks about the Father and his relationship to the Father, and it is he, the Son, who is leaving, but it is the Son, not the Father, who says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. How does that work? Well, it's an amazing passage. And and again, it's one that many Christians pass over quickly without recognizing what's happening here. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The I will come to you is almost assuredly speaking of his post-resurrection presence with the disciples and other believers. But then there's that verse, and, and this is a phrase you'll hear again, yet a little while, 
and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. In other words, when Jesus appears to the disciples in that period between the resurrection and the ascension, it is not a public ministry from that point onward. It is a, it is a ministry to and a presence with believers only. And so that's exactly, this isn't something mystical that Jesus is describing here. It, it's, it's not the seeing and not seeing that we see in John chapter 9. This is just fact, he's, he's not going to disclose himself to the world. That phrase, yet a little while, we have already heard that. It's, uh, it's in chapter 13. Yet a little while. Yet a little while. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. There again is the promise of the resurrection. It will be even clearer as we continue through the farewell discourse. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What in the world's happening there? In verse 20, verse 18 is explained. Jesus here says that in that day you will know. And uh, he says, you will know that I am in my Father. So, so th there is this statement of the Son with the Father. And so clearly we're looking here to the entire the entire sequence of salvation history, the atoning acts that would include the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ with the Father. And on that day, and again, that phrase, that day, as in the phrase otherwise in the New Testament, in the day of the Lord, a statement also found in the Old Testament. But in, in this day, in other words, when these events have taken place, then you will see that I am in the Father. Well, that makes sense. The high priestly prayer in John 17 is going to make that very, very clear when he speaks about what it means that I am in you. But notice what he says here, because this is really about the disciples, that I am in my Father and you in me. So how is it that we're not fatherless? Is it just because of the sending of the Holy Spirit? No, that, that, that's true. But that, that's not the primary explanation for why we're not fatherless. The primary explanation for the why we're not fatherless is because we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father. And if we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father, then by definition, we are fathered. Our, our Heavenly Father is our Father forever, not because we deserve to be His children and not even because we become His children independently of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but precisely because the Son has fulfilled His purpose, those who are in Him are now in the Father. And, and it's, a, it's a circularity here, lest we miss this. And He says, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This, this, this fact that we are in Christ, yes. And Christ indwells us, yes. Paul will describe this as being united to Christ by faith and then inseparable from Christ. And, and just as the Son is inseparable from the Father and we are inseparable from the Son, therefore we are inseparable from the Father. We're not orphans. 
And, and we are not orphans if Jesus is physically present with us as he was with the disciples here speaking these words. But we are not orphans when Jesus is here with us, in us. Now, this is a faith that would allow Christians, including these disciples and others throughout history, to die safely. Because after all, we cannot be severed from Christ. And if we are in Christ and he is in the Father, then we're in the Father, in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Because nothing can separate from the, fa- the Father from the Son. And if we are inseparable from the Son, then we are thus in the Son, inseparable from the Father. We will never be fatherless. It is impossible that we would ever be fatherless. And the Father's ministry to us is also the ministry of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. And much about that will be said in the verses that will follow. But even as in chapter 15, we are told that Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Again, that's a picture of what it will mean to be united with Christ. And so if we are in Christ and we're inseparable from Christ, we are in Christ and he is in us and he is in the Father, then we are safe in the Father. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, that's not just a moralistic statement. It's not just a word of encouragement. It's not even just a metaphor. It's actually a metaphysical truth. This is, this is what it means to be in Christ. It means that as we are in Christ and he is in the Father, we are in the Father in Christ. We're not in the Father apart from Christ. We're only in the Father because we are in Christ. But in Christ and inseparable from Christ, we are thus inseparable from the Father in Christ. The Apostle Paul will go on to say that we are no longer as slaves. We are, we are joint heirs with Christ. In Jesus, we are in Jesus the recipients of the, of the love lavished by the Father upon the Son. That adoption language becomes so very, so very sweet. That adoption language is implicit here, explicit in Paul. But here the disciples are being told, just, just follow me, follow me. If I'm in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, then whether I am physically with you or absent, you are safe. It's an amazing little passage, and it's just very few Christians seem to pay much attention to it, because as we're here in the Gospel of John, it's like, well, you say that about every verse in the Gospel of John because it's true. And then you, you, you come here to the, the farewell address, and it just seems like we've got to slow down because don't you think the disciples must have rerun this over and over again in their minds? That's what he meant when he said to us. Jesus returns again. This is this cycling back and forth. In verse 21, he comes back to what he was saying in verses 14 and following. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now here again, this is just really important because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you do love me and keep my commandments... You demonstrate that you love me. And he comes back to that. There's this 
normless Christianity that has become so popular amongst so many. Back in the 1980s, there was a huge controversy in evangelical Christianity. It was earth-shaking in the English-speaking world and in North America. And it came down to what became called the Lordship Controversy. And the key issue was whether or not repentance is necessary in the order of salvation. That is, in order to be saved, one must repent. A movement emerged, and uh, it was kind of localized uh, among some associated with Dallas Theological Seminary, Zane Hodges, theologian, Charles Ryrie, uh, very famously through the uh, Ryrie Study Bible, which at one point was a the best-selling study Bible in the United States during the 1980s. They became um, known for a teaching of grace that said that all that is necessary for salvation is belief that Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead. Sheer belief means that Jesus is our Savior, that salvation comes to the one who simply believes, and that, or the, the word that uh, I was taught as a teenager, intellectual assent. That, that is all that is necessary. So in order to be saved, all one must do in the sheer grace and mercy of God is give intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, and one is saved. Then those same people will come back and say, now, growing in maturity in Christ, one should repent of sins And the language, as I heard as a teenager, was make Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, this actually became rather systematized throughout much of evangelicalism through the four spiritual laws. Some of you will remember of a certain age, the uh, main evangelism mechanism and way of presenting the gospel of Campus Crusade for Christ. So, college kids all over America are being taught Here's how you share Christ, the four spiritual laws. And, and there was much gospel truth in there, but, but there's a huge theological problem. This idea that lordship is apart from salvation was a huge issue. As I re- recall the four spiritual laws, it came to the end of the book, and there was a chair, and it was, it was a throne, basically. And the new believer in Christ was encouraged to make Jesus lord of her or his life. Now, what, what would it mean to make Jesus Lord? It would mean to obey his commandments. It would be to repent of sins. It would be to acknowledge Jesus' lordship over all of life. Now, that is indeed what the gospel is. It's not a sign of maturity in the Christian faith. Increased obedience to Christ is, of course, a sign of maturity. Progressive sanctification is, of course, a sign of maturity. But the New Testament does not know of any Christian who has not repented of her sin or of his sin. That's just just clear, you would think. John MacArthur uh, wrote a response to all this entitled The Gospel According to Jesus and uh, made very clear, just just like John does, verse by verse, just saying "Here, here is the gospel as it is found in the New Testament according to Jesus. That's the title of his book. You want to know what the gospel is? Ask Jesus what the gospel is. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you keep my commandments. He doesn't speak to anyone who is his disciple without the clear understanding that they are obligated to all that he's taught them and that the absence of 
Obeying him is a sign they are not of him. And then the call to repent over and over again. Just take the Gospel of Matthew. Just think about the Gospel according to Jesus. Faith and repentance come immediately. Zane Hodges, in response to that book, uh, then he, he at uh, in Dallas at the time, wrote that MacArthur was guilty of what he called the Puritan heresy. Okay, you got my attention now. You know, the Puritan heresy? What would the Puritan heresy be? And the Puritan heresy was including repentance in the ordo salutis. Now, this is where you just want to, like a real live Puritan to bring into the room. You know, just, you know, how do you think it got there? It's because it's there in the New Testament. The Puritan heresy is otherwise known as the New Testament. Uh, but, of course, that's, we call them Puritans because that was a revolutionary idea in, in their own day. They, they were those who were seeking to purify the church because the church was disobedient to Christ. And it was a, it was a church there, the Church of England, when we're talking about the Puritans, the church of their first concern, the church they were trying to purify, was the inadequately reformed Church of England. Now, let me just make another little church history point here. We are their heirs. We're the heirs of the Puritans. Whatever the Puritans' heresies, they are our heresies. And whatever is the Puritans' truth, it is our truth, because this is how we have come to understand the gospel. I wrote an article for First Things entitled, Why I Am a Baptist. They invited me to do that just a few months ago. And I, I wrote by saying we're Baptists because we just kind of followed the logic I said, the reformers said the Catholic Church did not preach the gospel. The Puritans said the Reformation didn't go far enough. Separatists said the Puritans trying to purify the Church of England are like trying to resuscitate a dead elephant. It doesn't want to be reformed. So they separated from it, became separatists, and that would include those we know now as uh, evangelical Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Baptists. So the Reformers left the Roman Catholic Church. The Puritans, well, the Separatists left with the Puritans. Left, they, they just basically left the Puritans who were going to try to reform the Church of England and said that we're giving up on that. So the Reformers, the Puritans, then the Separatists, and the Baptists are those who said the Separatists didn't go far enough because you're still baptizing babies. Get a hint. And so then you end up with the Baptist. And so that's our, our pedigree right there. That's our, that's our tree line. But we're talking about the gospel here. Does the gospel include the call to repent? And the answer is, yes, it does. And a failure to repent means a failure to believe. Because we understand that this act of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit's work calling us to Christ as both Savior and Lord. And by the way, it is a tautology to believe you can even intellectually separate the two. He can't save if he doesn't have the power and authority to save. This was not Jesus' rescue attempt. It wasn't the danger of helicopters left in the desert. This was God's sovereign plan of redemption before the creation of the world. Jesus is both Savior and Lord.
You see this here again with the commandments. If you love him, you keep my commandments. This is inseparable from being in Christ. If we are in Christ and in Christ we are in the Father, this is the great news, we can't be orphans. But the visible sign of that is that we obey Christ. And Jesus has already told us that just a few verses before. So it should tell us something that he's come back to that. So he's speaking about the things invisible and the things visible simultaneously. What will be invisible is the great metaphysical ontological truth that as by faith we are in Christ and Christ is in the Father, we in Christ are in the Father. But what's visible is who is obeying Christ. What's visible is who is following Christ. And that becomes very clear in what what we're told in this text. In verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, he's already gone to do what he must do quickly. This is the other Judas. He said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? This is fascinating stuff. Isn't it interesting? I guess at the first blush, you think asking this question must have appeared a bit risky. But on the other hand, doesn't it tell you something about the relationship between Jesus and the disciples that in this point of great intensity, Judas just feels the need to ask the question, how how exactly does this work, Lord, that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Notice that Jesus answers him quite clearly in the verse that follows, in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Well, let's ask a fair question. Did Jesus answer Judas's question? Well, he didn't answer it, I think it's fair to say, the way Judas was expecting the answer. But he did answer the question. Again, Judas, Judas's question is quite honest. How is it, Lord that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. How's that going to work? And it's because the background to their knowledge is the public ministry of Jesus. They themselves are the product of the public ministry of Jesus. The public ministry of Jesus is, is indeed what is now coming to an end with what will be his imminent arrest. From now on, Jesus' ministry is to the church. How radical is that? And do we really think that? Do we really understand that? Because upon reflection, this is one of the most radical thoughts imaginable. It's one of the most radical truths revealed to us in the New Testament. Jesus' ministry after his his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father is only to believers. Jesus has no other ministry to the world than to believers. This is actually the point he makes in John 17. We just have to keep saying that because the the climactic revelation of so much of this comes in that conversation between Jesus and the Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17 when he he says the most amazing thing. When you think about sheep and goats, you think about the children of light and the children of darkness. And then you think about whether or not we understand the identity of the church. Jesus says in that prayer, as we shall see, I do not pray for the world. I pray for those you have given me. 
What a distinction. This is radical. It, it's, it's astounding. And, and, I, and frankly, it would be offensive in the larger world. When we, when we say to people, here's the bottom line. The Bible says Jesus is the sole explanatory principle for the existence of the cosmos. John 1. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the sole explanatory reason that atoms and molecules still hold together, Colossians 2. But what does Jesus mean to one who is an unbeliever? Nothing. Wise teacher, miracle worker, moral inspiration, Actually, nothing. Isn't this haunting? Doesn't this make conversation with lost neighbors different? Call the nations different? It's the gospel or nothing. Eternally. Jesus makes it so clear here in in ways that are just astounding. But he speaks again of the visible and the invisible. And in answer to Judas' question, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, again, my goodness, make our home with him? with him, to abide in us. Again, this is exactly what Jesus will talk about in this incredible picture of what it means that we are at home in him, in the picture of the vine and the branches. We're we're a part of his house. He he lives with us. We are are together with him. And this is kingdom language because the abode here is the same kind of language that we're talking about the kingdom of God. It's God's house. We are a part of his Ecumenia, we, we, are a, we are a part of his household and inseparable from him as we are inseparable in Christ. Jesus goes on and intensifies this. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So we've heard that before. And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Again, there's that, there's that incredible identity. Jesus won't stop this. He will not stop talking this way. And, and, and that's another thing we need to see in this pattern. Jesus still just won't stop talking about the fact that he is in the Father and we are in him. And thus we're safe. It's like Jesus says, like the answer to every question is, I'm in the Father and you are in me. Jesus, what time of the day is it? I'm in the Father and you are in me. Jesus, how are we going to explain this, that you're going to come back after the resurrection and be visible to us and not, not to everyone else? I'm in the Father and you are in me. Visibly, you show you're in me by obeying my commandments. Anyone got another question? It's going to be the same answer. The passage continues, as Jesus says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, this is, this is not all new. This is what Jesus is telling us again. As he's telling the disciples again. He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send a helper. But he says a little bit more here. It's like every time Jesus says a little bit more, he, he actually talks about the sending, whom the Father will send in my name. And this gets back to the fact that uh, the, the split between Eastern and Western Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox churches, and you can just kind of draw a year in the in the book 1054, in the Great Schism, a lot of it came down to whether or not the church would acknowledge that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And uh, the Western church, Western Christianity, has insisted creedally and confessionally that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And the logic of that becomes very clear when we look at this passage. It is not that the Father is sending the Spirit after the Son has left the scene. It is that the Son in the Father, the Father and the Son, send the Spirit. And then there's intercession here. Did you notice this? There's intercession here. Because Jesus is always saying, I will ask the Father and he will give it to you. And and you see that here when he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. There that is, as if Jesus has asked for him. This is is for the Son. It's, It's for the sake of the Son that the Father and the Son send the Spirit for, it's the sake, for the sake of those who are in the Son. It's a great promise here. The Holy Spirit will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that Jesus said. How does anyone dare preach? Seriously. Who would think that preaching would work? How in the world could it work? How are lives going to be changed? How are Christians going to be matured? How are people going to hear of Christ through something as ridiculous as a human preacher? The Apostle Paul is astounded by this. Just read 2 Corinthians. We should be astounded by this. But Jesus explains it right here. It is because the one who teaches all truth is actually the Holy Spirit. This is... is, God's ordained means of the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. The preacher does what the preacher is to do. The teacher does what the teacher is to do. But it is the Holy Spirit who inspired the the very words of Scripture, who is the Holy Spirit who will teach us all things. The human is just up there as a mouth. It's the Holy Spirit that does the teaching. If you're taught this morning, it is because the Holy Spirit has taught you. If we're taught this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit has taught us. Any teaching that actually takes place, that is the teaching that reaches the soul, it is that which the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. And then you will notice, and and just you, you're going to know now what the disciples wouldn't know when they heard this word. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance these things. Do this in remembrance of me. That's, that's coming. The Holy Spirit is our memory. And that, isn't that good? Isn't that precious? I wasn't going to say this. I, 
My mother turned 84 yesterday. She's in a memory care center, deep into Alzheimer's. She doesn't remember. She doesn't have to. The Holy Spirit remembers for her. He brings to remembrance. We're so safe in Christ and so frail in ourselves, we can't even remember. But the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance. Peace. I leave with you, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is where we're going to have to end. Peace. You know, we know the peace that passes all understanding. We think of peace. There are warnings about crying peace, peace, where there is no peace. My guess is that if you could just do a verb count about making peace, or you could do just a count of the word peace as a noun or the modified forms, just look at an adjective like peaceful. How much literature throughout, how much conversation throughout the history of humanity has been about yearning for peace? And of course, we also have the reality that Peace, humanly defined, is fairly well established merely as the cessation of hostilities. Recently, a diplomatic historian pointed out that the years of peace worldwide are so few that they're almost insignificant, except for the people living in them. There's hardly been a moment when the world has not been at war, some part of the world, and right now there are probably, by one count, between 30 and 40 active conflicts with shooting in any given day or exchange of some kind of military fire. And let's just say we could all of a sudden stop that. It would mean that the shooting would stop, but the hostilities would continue. History is never very far from us. You know, we're just barely 100 years past November the 11th, 1918, when World War I came to an end. But it came to end not with a surrender, but with an armistice. And the armistice basically said, we're going to stop shooting at each other. We're going to continue war by other means, including politics and economics. And you can draw an almost direct line from the lack of any kind of substantive peace at the end of World War I to the eruption of largely the same, the same nations going to war just a generation later. And now we're in a situation in which, even though, thanks be to God, Europe is not a primary arena of armed conflict, it's just been, it's just been diverted elsewhere. The biblical understanding of peace, and you know this, you probably learned this in Sunday school or in, you know, around a campfire with someone teaching at a youth retreat. It's, it's not just the cessation of hostilities, it is the removal of hostility. It is the setting right of the entire relationship. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about here. 
but it is also the absence of this kind of understandable fear on the part of the disciples because he's just told them in a little while, in a little while, more of that language is coming very quickly. In a little while, you will see me and then you will not see me. Just, just notice that Jesus talks about going away. He goes on to say this, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you in verse 28. Isn't this kind of hard to take, if we're honest? Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm leaving you. Don't be afraid. But they are afraid. But Jesus says, but just understand that I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you. You will not see me, but I'm in you. And as I'm in the Father, in the Father, in me, you are in the Father. You're, you're safe. And, and not only that, the, the Holy Spirit is being sent. So you are in me. You're safe, and the Holy Spirit is coming. You're not alone. He even says, as we saw when we were last together, it will be better. And again, we we think about this. How how do the disciples think about it? Better? Better? Seriously? Jesus, better than having you with us? But Jesus is telling the truth. He doesn't speak otherwise. It's actually better for the church that Jesus be in us and that we be in Jesus and that in the Son, we're in the Father. And that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and teaching us. This is better for us. I'm going away, and I will come to you. The peace he says that he's giving, he says, it's, it's the peace that I give. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. So Jesus himself is making the distinction here. There's peace, and then there's peace. The, the, the peace that I'm giving you is not that you will be at peace in the world. Rather, you're at peace with the Father in me. Nothing can assail you. Nothing can separate you. This is the Apostle Paul in that tremendous passage in Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Categorically, nothing. The Son is inseparable from the Father. We're in the Son, thus inseparable from the Father. We're inseparable from Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you're looking at the structure of the language, that's actually a command. So, actually, it comes down to obedience or disobedience. We're not to let our hearts be troubled, neither to be afraid. Okay, so let's talk turkey. You are either in the situation right now where where you have raised a small child as parent, or you have been that, well, we're all in the position of having been that small child. You're in the position of either having the universal experience of having been that young child and the experience of many of parenting such a child. If so, you recognize the near human impossibility of being told, don't be afraid, and obeying it. Just think of when your parents said to you, calm down. Don't be afraid. Well, you can try. 
I had this trouble when my parents would tell me to go to sleep. I couldn't make myself go to sleep. I didn't intend to be disobedient, but I, whatever was the skill of telling yourself to go to sleep, I didn't have that skill. And so, you know, and I'd be put in bed, learn the hard way, you don't get out of bed. But nonetheless, in bed, you know, I could at least talk honestly to my parents. I can say, I can't make myself go to sleep. I got that look from your parent like, you better learn this skill. Your happiness depends upon it. But, you know, just, just making yourself peaceful, calm, not afraid. How exactly do we do that? You know, it's very interesting that in the whole therapeutic community, they talk about learning the skills of self-care. The skills of self-care, including the uh, impulse control part of care. And I mean, the people who can't control their impulses are called toddlers. And if they're older than toddlers, we're in trouble. But that impulse control, that, that attitude control and all that, yes, there are, there are certain skills we can learn. And, and at least those certain skills we can learn are in such a way that may us let us cope with certain situations better, and, and those skills are necessary just for social interaction, and uh, we note when they're absent, yes, but here's the bottom line. It doesn't really work for very long. It, it just really doesn't. But when Jesus says to the disciples, let not your heart be troubled, when he speaks about his peace and he says, it's, it's not the peace that the world would give, it's not that peace I'm giving to you, let not your hearts be troubled, Neither let them be afraid. You know, when, when my father, who loved me so much and was a wonderful Christian father, when he said, don't be afraid, you know what that was? That was a transfer to me of confidence in my father. If my father said, don't be afraid, I knew how much my father loved me, and my father was incredibly powerful. He could make things happen. I, I knew that if my father said, don't be afraid, he meant, I got your back. Don't be afraid. But I was a rather analytical child. And as an analytical child, I kept thinking, yeah, but he's not always with me. Yeah, and uh, I've actually seen him drop things. And uh, I'm not sure he's powerful enough if a grizzly bear is coming to get me. More I think about it, the money's on the bear. But this isn't even my father speaking here. It's Jesus. And when he says, be not afraid, he speaks as the one through whom the worlds were made and without whom was nothing made that was made. He is the one who is so powerful that every principality and power is under his feet. He is the one who is at one with the Father. When he says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us this passage. Just in a few verses, so much that feeds our soul and changes the way we see the world. Father, we exult in the grace and mercy of God, whereby we are in Christ, and thus in Christ and the Father. Father, we pray that the visible signs of our obedience will be seen to the world and most importantly to the church as a sign that we are in you. May this be so and even more so every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen.